Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wong, your host, and this week I invited Dr. Morgan Cable from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory to help me bring you another astrobiology-themed discussion. Morgan has a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the Wilkes Honors College of Florida Atlantic University and a PhD in chemistry from Caltech. She is a technologist at JPL's Instrument Systems Implementation and Concepts section and was the Assistant Project Science Systems Engineer for the Cassini mission. She is currently working as a collaborator on the Mapping Imaging Spectrometer for Europa, an instrument on the upcoming Europa Clipper mission. In the lab, Morgan studies weird life, prebiotic chemistry, and biosignature detection. Whew, that's a lot of words to say a really simple thing. Morgan is a very intelligent and very important individual. But what you can't tell from all of those degrees, titles, and research interests is this. Morgan is also a fantastically friendly person, and it was my pleasure to chat with her about one of our favorite subjects. Helm, set a course for Titan. Welcome back, everybody. I'm joined today by Dr. Morgan Cable from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Hello. How's it going, Morgan? Really well, thanks. Really happy to be here. I'm happy you're here, too. I feel like uh, we've been talking about this on Twitter for the longest time, bringing you aboard Strange New Worlds. Yeah, well, speaking of Twitter, I guess we can just start out with how can people uh, find you online? Oh, yes. Well, my Twitter name is at Stars Are Calling because great Twitter name. the stars are calling and we must go. And I'm usually pretty vocal about ocean worlds, which includes Titan, which hopefully we'll talk about today. Mm-hmm. So you work at JPL. For me, it seems like every time I walk on that campus, I'm just starstruck by all the crazy things that are that's going on over there and all the history that it's had in humanity's space exploration. Yeah, totally. It's so fun. There's a sign as you drive in that says, welcome to our universe. And I still get this goofy grin every time I drive by, even though I've been there as an employee and before that as a student for, gosh, more than 10 years. I love working there. The type of people that you meet there, just walking around, you know, you can find someone who was working on the New Horizons mission and saw some of the first high-resolution images of Pluto, and then next you can be talking to someone about how we're going to cache and store samples for Mars sample return to bring some of that really precious regolith back and look for life. I mean, it's just such an incredible place, and I feel so lucky to be a part of that community. JPL is just the best and I have to thank you for giving me a, a great tour of the uh, wait, what is that called this is a mission control casual name is mission control but we call it the space flight operations facility and that is a place that some people refer to as the center of the universe mm-hmm. because in terms of data and extending our senses out with robotic spacecraft that's a place where all of that data comes before it's distributed to science teams for missions so in one respect it sort of is the center of the universe yeah and as we were walking around outside uh, on jpl's campus r2d2 and c3po just 
literally took a stroll down yeah, the sidewalk. So that doesn't happen every day, but occasionally we get some pretty interesting visitors. So it's a really fun, dynamic place. And mm-hmm. I encourage anyone listening to go to jpl.nasa.gov. We usually have an open house or an Explore JPL event at least once a year, but there are also ways that you can schedule tours. You usually have to do it a few months in advance, but they're free, they're open to the public, and so I encourage everyone to go and check that out and experience JPL for yourselves. So it's a lot of what we do is outreach because, I mean, any taxpayer is paying our salaries, right? So we're trying to show you all of the amazing discoveries that each and every one is contributing to. That's really great. I'm glad that's part of JPL's mission and that the scientists there feel that in their hearts to reach out back to the public who's supporting all of this because it's a government agency. And Absolutely. Everybody has their own little part to play in the scientific exploration of outer space through JPL and other NASA centers. Yeah, science belongs to everyone. Mm-hmm. So we're here on a science and Star Trek podcast. So Morgan, I was wondering, I actually don't really know, are you a Star Trek fan? I am definitely a Star Trek fan. I grew up watching a lot of the original series and The Next Generation. I really had an affinity for sort of how science was approached there and just the way that they dealt with simple problems like, um, in particular, not interfering, that prime directive. Mm -hmm. That's something that we think about whenever we're trying to go and explore some of these places where life could exist. So it's funny, the connections that you make with these things that you experienced in your childhood or continuing on, I still watch Star Trek in my free time. Yeah, the prime directive, of course, is that guiding principle of Starfleet where you're not really supposed to interfere with another civilization's natural development, especially if they are pre-warp capable. and. There's a interesting parallel that you brought up to planetary protection, which is our responsibility to try not to infect other worlds, infect in quotes, I guess, with yep. our, our own biology, just in case we destroy what might possibly be living there, and sort of as stewards of all of the amazing natural phenomena that we encounter in the universe. But it is a very fine line to cross because it's hard to go somewhere and actually make really detailed measurements and investigations without sort of tampering with these objects. And as we get closer and closer closer to places that may harbor life. Those are the really exciting places that we want to go to, but we also need to be very careful about that. So I was wondering if you can speak a little bit more about how we navigate this fine line. Sure. So JPL has a whole department called Planetary Protection, and it sounds like these uh, men and women should wear capes. They don't usually wear capes, at least not that I've seen, but they're a very critical part of making sure, like you said, that we don't number one, contaminate other worlds, but also to make sure that if we bring something back, say, like Mars sample return, that we don't contaminate Earth with some of these alien, if there are alien microorganisms there. So both of those things we think very critically about, and most of the work that I've been involved in is trying to send spacecraft to other places like Europa, like Enceladus, or Titan, and in these places there is liquid water. And everywhere on Earth that we find liquid water, we find life. So that means that potentially life could exist there, first of all, like alien life. But secondly, and importantly, if we accidentally have some microbial hitchhikers on our spacecraft and that touches that water, they could potentially float away and and start growing and infect that other world. And I want to find life somewhere in the universe 
as much as anyone, but how bad would it be to finally find life somewhere and then realize we put it there by accident with another spacecraft? So we have all sorts of techniques for making sure our spacecraft are very clean, as sterile as they can be. Nothing's going to be perfectly sterile, but we have strict requirements to try to clean them as much as possible before we send them to these places. People ask me all the time, is there life on Mars? And sometimes I like to shock people and say, yes, there's almost certainly life on Mars and we brought it there because there's probably at least one, but probably many more microbes that have hitched a ride on one of our spacecraft and landed on Mars. Now, whether or not they have survived in that environment is another question, but... You're exactly right. The toughest form of life on Earth Aside from the water bears, you know, the tardigrades that everyone's seen those cute pictures of with the little legs and stuff, mm -hmm. they're something called bacterial spores. And these we know survive in space. We've actually done tests to prove that. They essentially go into this state of hibernation or stasis where they form a really tough coat around their DNA. And that spore, it's called a spore, can survive for presumably an indefinite amount of time. And so chances are, if some of these really tough hitchhikers were aboard and not effectively cleaned off of some of our previous spacecraft, they would still be there today. Now, it's not like they're growing, right? They're sort of in stasis. But if, say, things were to get warmer and wetter, potentially they could germinate, which means turn back into normal bacteria and start to grow and multiply. So you mentioned tardigrades. Yes. How much do you know about tardigrades? I know they're awesome. I know <laughs> they survive in space, and I think they're adorable. But I have a friend who is very afraid of them. Like, if they were life-sized, I think it'd be cool to ride one, but she thinks they'd be terrifying. You mentioned before we actually started recording that you hadn't seen any Star Trek Discovery of the new series. Correct. So you probably don't know that there is... <gasps> a macroscopic tardigrade no way. in Star Trek Discovery. Really? Yeah. Okay, I have to start watching this then. <laughs> it's it's pretty great. And I've tr been trying to find somebody who knows a lot about tardigrades and actually studies them. Ooh. Um, so I don't know if, if, if you can talk a little bit about tardigrades or if you know somebody who I should bring on this podcast. Gosh, I'll but... bet there's someone out there that's related to astrobiology who knows a lot more than I do. Mm -hmm. I do know that... They have been put in some type of space environment, so vacuum, low temperature, and they're able to survive for certain periods of time where they're completely dried out, sort of as if they had hitched a ride on some kind of comet or meteorite. I also know that they have been proposed as being included in one of our first interstellar missions, something mm -hmm. that might be accelerated, say, with a laser to like really, really fast, maybe close to the speed of light so it can get to one of these planets in orbit around another star. And there are some planetary protection concerns with that, right? Are we contaminating another world? Right now, the only rules that we have, the international rules from COSPAR, which is this organization that sort of is trying to keep us from contaminating other worlds, so far those rules only apply to the solar system. So we'll have to see what the future holds in terms of whether or not tardigrades can be our first interstellar ambassadors. Wow. Yeah, so the tardigrade in Star Trek Discovery actually does go into one of these hibernation modes where it basically releases all of the water and sort of shrivels up and goes into stasis where it's trying to basically survive in a very harsh environment. And it's interesting that that's actually what they do. Yeah. That's so great. I didn't plan on talking about tardigrades, but I love the tardigrade in Star Trek Discovery. It's one of my favorite characters, although it's not really a character. It's just something cool that they find. But I think it's, it's so great. I think so too. 
we've talked about so many different things in so many different places in the solar system and beyond already, but I actually brought you here to talk about Titan. Yes, one of uh, my favorite worlds. Yeah, mine too. And so at the end of episode 28, which was the last astrobiology-themed episode that we did on Strange New Worlds, I sort of teased that maybe we would have a Titan episode next. And so yeah, here we are. Morgan, you definitely are a huge Titan fan, and you also study Titan. There are some connections for uh, Titan in Star Trek. There's at least one appearance of Titan in the 2009 Star Trek movie, the J.J. Abrams reboot. They flew into Titan's atmosphere. Oh, that's right. To basically hide from the Romulans who were trying to attack Earth. They needed to find a way to sneak back into the solar system. What better place to do it than Titan's hazy atmosphere? Because as we know, you can't see anything in the optical wavelengths in Titan's atmosphere because of all this organic haze. That's right. Very cool. Yeah. So NASA has actually flown a spacecraft into Titan's atmosphere. And it wasn't named Enterprise, but it was named Cassini. So... Morgan, you were part of the Cassini science team, right? Yes. Well, I was part of the project science side, which is more related to the spacecraft itself. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was an amazing mission. So the Cassini-Huygens mission, which was actually one of our very successful international collaborations, was uh, joint between the United States and the European Space Agency, the ESA. So NASA and ESA teamed up. We built Cassini, which was the orbiter, and the ESA built Huygens, which was a lander that specifically went to Titan. Mm -hmm. Now, when we were designing this with ESA, we had no idea what the surface of Titan looked like, because as you said, we couldn't peer through that haze. We had a taste of it with Voyager, so we sort of knew what we were getting into. Both Voyagers actually flew near Titan, but Cassini was the first one to sort of peel back Titan's veil and be able to use special instruments outside of the visible wavelengths to see what the surface looked like. And one of the most exciting things we found was that Earth is not the only planet in our solar system that has liquid on its surface. Titan does too. It's a different kind of liquid. We're talking about hydrocarbons, so methane and ethane, that form these giant lakes at the North and South Poles. But it was a really fascinating discovery. We had some ideas that we might have an environment like that, and the the Huygens lander was actually made to float on those liquids if, in fact, the whole surface was covered. But it's been an amazing mission. It was in the Saturn system from 2004 to just recently, last year, 2017. So 13 years of amazing discoveries of Titan and all of the other moons and rings and the world Saturn, too. So you mentioned that Cassini and Huygens used interesting different ways to probe Titan's atmosphere and also its surface. So what were some of the instruments involved in making those discoveries? So the Romulans might have been able to try to peer in through the atmosphere and see the Enterprise if they'd used some different wavelengths. Mm. Now these haze particles that are present in Titan's atmosphere, kind of like the haze layers that form here in Los Angeles, they're tough to see through with visible wavelengths, but there are certain windows, that's what we call them, uh, areas of the spectrum where we can peer through that and look all the way to the surface. Some of those are in what we call the near-infrared, These are wavelengths that are just a little bit longer than your eye can see. Now, as a chemist, I really like this part of the spectrum because a lot of the molecules that are important for trying to understand life and prebiotic chemistry, they absorb 
wavelengths in this region. So we kind of call it the fingerprint region. It's a great place where we can identify, say, methane or HCN or other important molecules on the surface. So we were able to use that and also radar, so much, much different wavelengths to be able to peer through Titan's thick haze and study the lakes, study the dunes. Titan has dunes around its equator. We're still not quite exactly sure what they're made of, but we think it's a bunch of organic stuff. So it's a fascinating and alien world. Yeah. Alien in the sense that these things are made up of things that on Earth would be like natural gas or volatiles that we would have in the atmosphere because it's much warmer on Earth. Or poison. Or poison, yeah. (laughs) Hydrogen cyanide is one of the most abundant solids on the surface, we think. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely not something you want to mess around with here on Earth. But also very familiar to Earth because the types of morphologies that you see on Titan, as you said, it's it's a world that has liquid on its surface, the only other world that has stable large bodies of liquid on its surface. It's got dunes, it has what looks like river valleys, right? And so sometimes I think to myself, you know, what is the planetary body in our solar system that is most Earth-like? And in some ways it's Titan because of the very active hydrological cycle that is happening on its surface. You're totally right. It's a hydrologic cycle, but here hydro doesn't mean water. It means hydrocarbon. And I like to think of it that way too. Sometimes when I go out to the public and try to tell them about Titan, I'll sort of trick people. I'll put two images side by side, black and white, of course, because otherwise the blue ocean gives it away. But if you look at Titan and Earth and both in black and white, sometimes you can really easily confuse the two. There are some river channels and shorelines of some of these these Titan beaches that look very similar to some shorelines you might find here on Earth. And as you mentioned, there are plenty of organics on the surface of Titan. And so that leads many of us to wonder, is there life on Titan's surface? Because we are made of organics, and these organics are all over Titan. There are seas and lakes of methane and ethane, and dissolved in them are things that are made in the atmosphere, larger organic molecules that rain or snow down onto the surface, and then they can be changed there too. So Titan is a very intriguing world for that matter, that it has so much carbon in the form of hydrocarbons and and nitriles bonded to nitrogen, but it's also very different. So Titan is extremely cold, about 90 degrees on the Kelvin scale, so Mm -hmm. Earth is more like 300 on on that scale, so it's, it's quite cold compared to Earth. There's a real lack of oxygen in Titan, because most of the oxygen is frozen in the water bedrock, water exists on Titan, there's plenty of it, but it's all very frozen and makes the rocks basically on on Titan's surface. And then the liquid on Titan, as you said, isn't water, it's methane and ethane as well. And these are what we call nonpolar solvents, right? So they act very different compared to water in terms of their chemistries. So help me imagine what weird life on Titan would look like given the prevalence of all of these organics, but also the very different conditions that exist on Titan. Totally. This is such a fun thing to think about. And I'm doing some work with some colleagues in the laboratory simulating the surface of Titan. You use liquid nitrogen and you can get pretty close to that Titan surface temperature. Liquid nitrogen 78 Kelvin. So we warm it up to 90 and poof, you've got Titan in a jar. And we're trying to do some experiments to answer those questions. But I should make one statement because this is really important. 
There is a lot of weird science, presumably weird chemistry, happening on the surface of Titan, but a lot of people don't realize that Titan also has a liquid water ocean. Underneath all of the cool stuff happening on the surface, you go through some of that ice shell that you were talking about that's the bedrock, and you get down deeper, and there is a liquid layer of water there. So even regardless of the cool things happening on the surface, we could maybe find Earth-like life there one day too in that ocean. It might be harder to get to. You have to drill down through that, that crust, but that's something to consider too. So Titan may have both flavors of life. But I want to talk about the weird one because that's, that's what gets me most excited. You're absolutely right. Like you said, the liquids on Titan's surface are very, very different. Liquid methane and ethane are nonpolar. So things that dissolve in those solvents, those liquids, don't dissolve in liquid water and vice versa. So any large molecules that life as we know it needs to survive, things like DNA and proteins, are not going to be able to dissolve in these liquids. Now that doesn't mean that life couldn't exist. It just may mean that it uses different building blocks, things that would dissolve in those liquids. So like dissolves like is one of the things we as chemists like to say. So if the solvent, if the liquid is nonpolar, then you should look for other nonpolar things to dissolve in it. However, there is one other additional issue to consider, which you also brought up. Titan is very cold. Now, if any of you have ever had a hot cup of coffee and you dissolve a lot of sugar in there, you can put a lot of sugar in. For those of you who have sweet tooth like me, you know what I mean. But what if you were to take that hot cup of coffee and stick it in your freezer for a little bit, a few minutes, let that temperature drop down and pull it out? Is all the sugar still dissolved? Usually not. Some of it will, as a chemist, we call this precipitate out or crash out. You'll end up with some crystals of that sugar down at the bottom of your coffee cup. Now the same thing happens on Titan, but instead of dropping just a few degrees, we're talking about hundreds of degrees colder. So some things that would dissolve if things were warmer, they just won't. Now again, that doesn't mean life couldn't happen. It just means that it might be different. Maybe this life doesn't exist in the liquid itself, but maybe at interfaces, right? Now, liquid is useful for life because it allows reactants to come together and then move apart. So the system can move and change and evolve. That's a really powerful thing that liquids and gases can do that solids can't. But at interfaces, say at one of these Titan shorelines, that might be an interesting place where some weird alien organism could live kind of at that solid phase and the, the liquid could bring in some interesting food or something else that it needs to metabolize, allow it to react and then wash the products away. So there could still be some ways that we might find life, but we really have to think carefully about what's possible, what's not, and to broaden our idea of what life could be. Mm, that's a really good point, to broaden our, our minds to not just accept the life that we see here on Earth, as life, but to use our imaginations to understand how life might arise and behave on a completely different world with a completely different set of boundary conditions and things that it can play with. And this is where things like Star Trek can really help us because we've seen with the incredible imaginations of the producers and writers for those type of science fiction shows, the sort of full spectrum of possibilities is immense. And being able to take some of those lessons and say, okay, well, that weird form of life in that one episode, I wonder if that could exist here. Or if we were to try to search for it, 
what would we look for in real life? So sometimes we can take lessons from science fiction as we try to pursue science fact. That's a really great sentiment. I love that. So you mentioned looking for life. How would you imagine that we would go about looking for life on Titan? What would you send back to Titan now that Cassini and Huygens have run their course? What, what would you want to send back to Titan to actually look for signs of life? Oh boy, that's a very difficult question. Well, we may have something in the works that could potentially visit Titan's surface in the near future. There is a mission concept called Dragonfly. This is such a cool idea. It is a quadcopter, a giant one. But since Titan's atmosphere is so much thicker than Earth's, it can lift up even a, a fairly sizable payload of a few instruments and essentially hop along the surface and explore different places. Now this is a mission concept that NASA has selected along with one other separate mission that's going to a comet, potentially. Ultimately, NASA will only pick one of those two, so it's still got a 50-50 shot of becoming real. But as a co-investigator on that mission, I'm really hopeful that we make it back to Titan with Dragonfly. Now if not, there are still some future concepts that I think could try to search for life. Now as a, a scientist looking for life, one of the things that we try to do is be as agnostic as possible, so non-Earth centric whenever we look for life. And one of the things that most scientists agree on is that if life is there, chances are it's going to alter its environment in some way because it needs to metabolize, it needs to store and transfer information and be able to use energy to do that. And so some of the things that we can look for are patterns, patterns in key sets of molecules that if there's no life there, we know what that pattern would look like. And if life is there, it's gonna alter it. Now we try not to predict how it will alter that pattern, but just to look for differences that we wouldn't expect. Carl Sagan once said that life has to be the hypothesis of last resort. Now that means that you have to have excluded out all other possible explanations. And if you design your experiment right and you do that, the only theory left, the only thing that makes sense is life. That's what we're trying to do when we search for life in these places. Wonderful. I really hope that Dragonfly gets selected. No offense to the other group going to the comet. It's really a shame that NASA can't send both of those missions or even all of the, what, 12 that were in oh, the gosh. initial submission. Yes, uh, we'd like to fund everything. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, there's only so much money to go around, and we do the best that we can with the funding that we do receive. And I commend NASA on making some really difficult decisions when it comes to that process. Well, even here on Earth, though, we are doing some really cool Titan science, and you're doing some of that in your lab. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about the types of lab work that you're doing that have implications for Titan. I would love to. Titan is a fascinating world, and luckily it's one that we can recreate here in the laboratory. We use what we call cryostats. Cryo is cryogenic, that means cold, and stat is just, you know, some sort of apparatus that you build. And doing that, we've been able to make mini Titan lakes. So we'll condense methane and ethane and then dissolve some organic molecules in there and try to understand what kind of chemistry can happen. Now, as a chemist, usually when you cool things down, stuff gets boring. Typically, reactions either slow down or don't happen at all. But one thing that we're finding on Titan is that that's not true at all. There are some reactions that happen 
very quickly, like, like, like that, at freaking cold temperatures, and it's just crazy. We're learning that these places in the outer solar system that we thought were boring and dead and cold and just not active, turns out they're very dynamic. There's active chemistry happening. There are active physical processes happening too. And we're just starting to learn some of those things. One of the things that we've discovered in the laboratory is we took one molecule that's pretty common on Titan's surface, benzene, which you don't want to breathe in here on Earth. It's bad for you. But on Titan, you know, you wouldn't be breathing that anyways because there's no oxygen. So it's fine. So there's benzene. It's a solid on the surface of Titan. Now, when you mix that with liquid ethane, which is also abundant on Titan, it's part of the lakes, what we discovered was that these two molecules end up rearranging themselves into what's called a co-crystal. It's sort of like table salt is a crystal. This is a similar type of thing, but at these low temperatures, the bonds between those don't need to be quite as strong to still hang on. And what we've discovered is this sort of behaves as what you might think of as a hydrated mineral here on Earth. This was the first co-crystal we discovered. Since then, we've discovered at least one more for sure, and we've got tentative evidence for a few others, not just between liquid and solid, but between solid and solid. So there are associations that are happening that we might not necessarily predict that could sequester or store away some things. There are lots of mysteries on Titan, like there should be a ton more ethane on the surface than we see. And one of the theories is, well, maybe it's being stored underground in processes like this. So this is helping us try to answer some of these lingering questions about Titan and potentially could help address some of the prebiotic questions. So before life forms, getting those molecules together in the right place at the right time to maybe lead to life one day. And these co-crystals, you said, are held together by bonds that aren't quite as strong as the conventional types of chemical bonds that you would think of working on Earth. I think in your paper you mentioned that they were van der Waals forces, right? That's exactly right. So most biological processes that happen here on Earth tend to use two types of bonds. They tend to use covalent bonds. Those are pretty strong. It takes some energy to make them and some energy to break them. And then there are hydrogen bonds, and that's how, for example, your proteins in your body can fold and, and do all sorts of things. DNA uses hydrogen bonding too. That one's a little bit weaker, but both of those are still pretty important. Now, on Titan, covalent bonds are way too strong. At those low temperatures, there's no way you're going to get enough energy to break or make those kinds of bonds, usually. We're finding some chemistry like that might happen. But what we're finding is that weaker associations, like hydrogen bonding and this thing called van der Waals, tend to happen at Titan and kind of take the place of those other stronger bonds here on Earth and do the same kind of chemistry. The van der Waals happens when you have two molecules that are polarizable. So when they get close to each other, one kind of goes slightly positive, one kind of goes slightly negative, and oh hey, opposites attract, and you'll get a very gentle attraction between them. Definitely not as strong as some of these other bonds, but at low temperatures, it's just enough. And so it may be that life in these cold environments just uses the same tools we know of, but just slightly shifted in energy. So a different set of tools, but things that we're still familiar with. That's so cool. And we're just beginning to embark on the investigation of how these different types of bonds or tools that chemistry or biology might use 
actually works in the lab and it's all thanks to you and colleagues and many colleagues yeah Yeah. there are a lot of scientists that are working on trying to understand this problem from a lot of different angles too it's a very exciting time we're sort of uncovering titan mineralogy for the first time ever and it turns out to be an organic chemist paradise that's wonderful anything else that you'd like to say about titan i think one of my favorite things about titan is that if you think about the universe Our sun, our star, is actually not the most common type of star. The most common star, at least in our observable universe, is a red dwarf, which gives off a lot less light. So any planet in a stable orbit around a red dwarf is going to get less light. In fact, it'll get about the same amount of light as Titan does. So chances are there are a lot more Titans than Earths out there. And so if we can find hints of prebiotic chemistry or maybe even life on Titan, that really gives me hope that one day we'll find similar types of life out there in the universe. Excellent. Wow. This is so great. (laughs) (laughs) Everything that you're saying, I just feel like I want to quote it. It blows your mind, right? Yeah, print it out on a big sheet of paper and just hang it on my wall. We should totally do that. That'd be awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So before we end, why don't you give me uh, just a preview or a taste of some of the other projects that you've been working on recently? Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of cool things going on at NASA and at JPL. I'm working on a mission concept called Europa Lander that would potentially, if it gets funded, land on the surface of Europa, cut into the ice or the salt or wherever we land and look for life. I've also been working on a mission concept to go to Enceladus, which is another one of my really favorite places in the solar system, and sample that plume and look specifically for evidence of life from that ocean, that subsurface ocean. And stay tuned. Hopefully some of these concepts will move forward. If not, we're doing a lot of work in the laboratory to prove that we can do these measurements and really ask the ultimate question, are we alone in the universe? Well, it sounds like we'll just have to invite you back onto the podcast to, I would to talk love about to. Europa or Enceladus. I would love to come back. That's this great. has been so fun. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. Before we go, I just wanted to say thank you to you for being on the podcast, but also just for being my friend and my colleague and really for believing in me as a young astrobiologist. It's really meant so much in my short scientific career so far to have somebody like you who really supports me and is an inspiration to me as an explorer and gets me excited about thinking about life in the universe and all the cool things that we can accomplish. It's really you're really infectious with your enthusiasm for outer space and I'm just so glad to know you. That really means a lot to hear you say that and your enthusiasm is contagious too and I think the more people that we can get passionate about the search for life and looking up and thinking about all these these critical questions that affect humanity and civilization the better society will create so thank you for continuing to push the bounds of science fiction and science fact and blending that because that's where some of the cool innovations happen i can't wait to see what your future holds thanks Morgan. you know sometimes scientists of dr morgan cable's stature and success rate can be really intimidating austere and aloof but not so with morgan She's the most welcoming, excitable, and genuinely supportive person that you could ever encounter. One of my college friends told me that confidence 
is a little voice in the back of your head that tells you that you belong. And when I'm around Morgan, I feel like I belong in the scientific community. And I hope that this discussion has made you feel that way too. Because as Morgan said, science is for everyone. So whether you're a professional scientist or not, you have claim to the wonderful and inspiring work that NASA does for all of humankind. This concludes episode 30 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you learned something new about Titan and the prospects for life on that familiar yet exotic world. Keep looking up, and I'll see you out there. How do you work with HCN? Isn't Very that... carefully. We have an HCN meter that we use that has two separate warnings, one for slow death and one for quick, painless death, <laughs> depending what? on the concentration of HCN. Well, yeah, because like, you can tolerate a certain amount, um, but then above a certain threshold, you'll like die, but it'll take a while. And above another threshold, you're, you're going to die really quick. So we are extremely careful. Right. Work with very small amounts in the fume hood. It took a long time to get permission from safety to do that, but they've been really good at working with us. There's a saying, there are old chemists and there are bold chemists. There are no old, bold chemists because they've all blown themselves up. Mm -hmm.